Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 25 of the In Between Sets podcast with me, Sam Brown. Um, This episode, just like all the other episodes, is sponsored by practicemovement.com. Practicemovement.com, your source for online coaching, consultation, and uh, just education in general. That is my personal company. So if you like the show, go over to the website, practicemovement.com, check out what I offer. And I would love to chat with you about your training, get you on the team for uh, coaching and whatnot. And we can kind of go from there. But the other sponsor for the podcast is First Attachment Nutrition. Justin Harris has developed and built a nutrition company that is just amazing. So I have always been a fan of Justin, of what he has been doing in terms of the fitness space. The information that he's been putting out and the products now that he have been that he is putting out are amazing. So if you want, head over to firstattachmentnutrition.com. Use practice to get 10% your, off of your order. And uh, yeah, support an awesome company making products that are worth a shit. So this episode actually is, uh, it was amazing to record. Uh, I got to sit down with Mike Bartos, owner and creator of uh, Mike Bartos Power Center. If you're in the strongman game, you are well versed in how amazing Bartos is with his equipment from his stone of steel to the dead sled to... Uh, everything, everything that he makes, his logs are amazing. His yokes are amazing. Everything is such a high quality. And coming from a strongman background myself, I am such a huge fan of what he does and what he creates because it provides a certain standard to the equipment used that shows. One of the biggest gripes that I had in my past with strongman was they would say it was one piece of equipment, then it was something else. And obviously you have to train with a certain amount of uncertainty because things happen. But because Mike and his team have been able to create products that are so good that you start to see them more and more at different shows. And it just shows the the quality of the products and how awesome that he is uh, for making them. So you're going to get a lot of information in this in this uh, podcast as well. We jump into training. We jump into nutrition. We jump into, you know, uh, just breaking down his products, understanding, you know, his thought process, how he develops these things as well as his training history. I mean, Mike himself is such an amazingly strong lifter and uh, he, he does such amazing work articulating that to you know his audience and his platform and whatnot. But at the end of the day, this is one of my favorite conversations I've been able to have. And, and honestly, as soon as we were done recording, I think we talked for like another hour or an hour and a half. I should have just kept recording, but uh, he'll, he'll definitely be back on an absolute wealth of knowledge. So guys, check out episode number 25 of In Between Sets Podcast with Mike Bartos from Mike Bartos Power Center. Little timer. Okay. And then we'll go from there. All right, we're live. I think this may be one of the first ones where I've pressed the button and nothing bad has happened. <laughs> That's <laughs> it. Successful already. That's it. 
My your face just got really blurry as you said yeah, that. So it's perfect. Yeah, let's. Perfect. That's why it's it's a nice audio picture for everybody. But uh, Mike, can't thank you enough for jumping on. Truly appreciate not only the work that you do in the industry, but you taking the time out of your day. I know you're a busy, busy guy. You got a lot of stuff going on. Welcome to the show. I know a lot of people have asked you to come on. They've been kind of requesting you a little bit, which has been awesome to see because I have been a fan of your work since I've been in Strongman, right? Like it's been really cool to see your products just become really the gold standard in a lot of places yeah. for- well, Thank uh, you very you know, much. For, for quality, for just consistency. And it's it, it's great because coming from a Strongman background, we're used to just, just, just wild and crazy equipment, right? Like we never knew exactly mm -hmm. what we would get. We never knew the size of anything. Logs would be anywhere between 10 inches or 14 inches. And like it was just, there was no real standard to things. So again, I appreciate what you do. But the first question I have for you is what kind of got you into building equipment in the first place? Well, I, I've, I've loved strength training, you know, since I've been a young guy. It was always the thing that I gravitated to. So, you know, even a, being a young kid participating in sports, I was the guy that looked forward to the off season more than I looked forward to the season, uh, you know? And so, and then even just aside from there, you know, constantly going to local gyms, training in my parents' house and stuff. I've been around this and, and have loved this really since the first time I've touched weights. So as time went on, it, uh, you know, I eventually became a gym owner. And as I opened the gym, I started making equipment for us and I had no intention of selling it. It was just, there were things that I wanted. So I tried to figure out, the best way to manufacture it. And, uh, and then it just kind of went from there. I realized that, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are like me that have the same interest. And, uh, and so as we started making things that worked well for us, I figured take a shot at seeing what everybody else thought. That's awesome. So what, what do you, what would you say was the first piece of equipment that you built? Was it like a squat rack? What, what was it? Well, we built, uh, well, let's see, this would have been a long time ago. I messed around with just a real basic Husafel stone that was like, mm -hmm. you know, what everybody else was making at the time it was like the first piece that, that we made. But then uh, the first thing that I ever worked on was actually an iteration of our contrast platform. So it was a, a lever device that sat on top of a barbell mm -hmm. and I wanted to overload the bottom end of my deadlift. So, you know, if you could picture a lever, it, it sits on a hinge and that arm sits on top of the barbell and then you plate load it. And the way it was designed was, when you started to lift the barbell up, you'd have additional load in the bottom. But once the bar got to about mid height, you know, mid shin or, or three quarters up your shin, the lever arm would fall off and it would go back to straight weight. And conceptually, what I thought was, is if I could pull multiple singles there, overload the bottom without the fatigue of grinding at the top, then, uh, you know, I could accumulate more, more work in the bottom and, and build up the bottom end of my deadlift. So when I was using that thing, one day I was messing around with some power cleans and I had maybe 50 to 75 additional pounds on and I start to pull like a clean and I don't have great clean technique or anything like that. But I noticed when that, when that weight came off the bar, it felt like it was getting shot out of a slingshot. And I said, man, what is that? You know, because I've never really felt that hard contrast before. So a couple of days later, I'm reading science of practice of strength training it was actually one of my buddy's books. who was just sitting out on his kitchen table and I read about quick release technique. And I said, well, this is kind of like quick release technique. I mean, it's not really an isometric in the bottom, but the, it's an overload in the bottom. And so I messed around with that thing for a while. It was sloppy. 
but really the first thing that we made was our contrast platform, you know, which, uh, which allows for quick release technique to be done. And, uh, and then from there, we moved on where the, the stone of steel was the, the first product that we actually sold that, that we designed and, and made for the gym. And I, and it's so funny because obviously if anybody's listening to this that has made their own Atlas stones, it is a massive pain in the ass. Like there are so many things that can go wrong. You're loading the cement, whatever. And like, then it cracks and there's an air bubble and, and it's, it's, it's really is like a, a big pain. But when I first got my hands on a stone of steel, I was like, this is really frigging cool, man. Like just the <laughs> fact that you can essentially get rid of having to have so many stones and so many sizes, so much space, because most of the time a, a strongman gym is, you know, limited on space, limited on equipment, limited on budget. If they can purchase something that kind of incorporates a lot of those different stones and allows them to use the weights that they already have. Like that's mm -hmm. the coolest thing. And that whole system of how it works with the handle. And it's, it's, it's such a really cool designed system that, uh, like I said, the first time I used it, I was, I was really blown away with the, the actual, like how it feels, right. The actual, like the powder coating that you do in, in the, the actual fit and finish of it is phenomenal. And this is just coming from me who's, who's used it, but I know a lot of people that have, have one and that get a ton of use out of it. So massive props for that. Now, have you, like, what is your strongman history? Like where have you competed in the past? What sort of history do you have with that sport that made the stone of steel as like one of the major, you know, big pieces that you make? Yeah, I competed regularly in strongman in my late teens and early twenties. And so I was doing a, a couple powerlifting meets and then a couple strongman contests a year, you know, throughout those, those years of my life. And then as I became a gym owner, you know, you kind of have the adage of, uh, you know, you open up a gym and uh, you're around it all day, but your training gets worse. Yes, and so I feel that. <laughs> it, yeah, absolutely. And I, I tell you what, uh, I have massive amounts of respect for people that coach full time because the, the mental energy that goes into coaching is enormous. And uh, especially when you're, especially when you're coaching beginners, you know, where the bulk of the people that I worked with were intermediates and, and, and beginning lifters, mm -hmm. you know, most of them were lifting weights to participate in sports. And so when we, when we opened the gym, I realized very quickly that if I was going to be a full-time coach, you know, my own training for at least a short period of time was going to have to kind of be not put on a back burner, but maybe a side burner. Uh, you know, and so I spent a couple years of not actually competing in anything, uh, just focusing on building our gym, you know, serving the clients that I had the best I possibly could while simultaneously working in a couple different high schools as a, a coach as well. And so, uh, yeah, so the, the competing kind of stopped throughout pretty much all of my 20s into my late 20s, you know, as a full time coach. And then when we threw the second business on top, mm -hmm. you know, there was absolutely no chance of of being able to get away to compete. So. Uh, I have a, you know, pretty extensive past. I started, I did my first powerlifting meet when I was 15 mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, so I had a, probably about an eight year window of regularly competing, maybe a, a six year gap of time off of not participating in any competitions. And then, you know, I've recently got back into at least getting on the platform to pull some deadlifts when I can. Yeah. So you, uh, you, your deadlift has been amazing to see, especially how you train it. And you have some programs on your site of of, uh, you know, kind of how you go about attacking the deadlift, but what would you say? Because the majority of the listeners of this, of the show are in that intermediate 
sort of powerlifter, strongman, strength enthusiast sort of bracket. And I know, I'm, and I'm going to put the link to that to your to your website uh, at the bottom of the show notes here. But I have noticed specifically with your deadlift, you the ferocity in which you pull the bar, the ferocity in which you train it is very different than most, right? And I would love to hear some of your insight into how you go about attacking a deadlift. If for a lot of people, the deadlift is either they love it or they hate it. There's like really no in between, right? So how would you go about, you know, if you're noticing someone struggling with a deadlift, what are some of the big things that you do? Because you have a very strong pull and you have for a very long time. I would love to hear your insight on that. Okay, well, first realizing that everybody's an individual, Yep. You know, and so not, not everything is going to work for, for every lifter. Uh, you know, I mean, the first thing is, is, and you may laugh at this. Uh, I had a boy at my gym for a long time. Now this wasn't a deadlift, but it was a squat. So you're talking about beginners basically here. So yes. I'll, I'll refer back to that. So I had a kid at my gym and he was about 16 years old and he could not squat 225. and his brother was pretty strong and he would go, man, I hate to squat. I hate to squat. I hate to squat constantly. And so listen, like if I'm coaching a 25 or 30 year old, I'm a lot different than a 15 or 16 year old. Absolutely. And so I told him, I said, they still have like childlike imaginations. You could have some fun. So I said, Dale, I said, listen, buddy, here's what you need to do every day. You need to say, I love to squat yourself 100 times. And I said it as seriously as possible to him, you know? And he started going, I love to squat. I love to squat. I love to squat. And then like the first time he got five more pounds in the bar, it was just praise you know, and, um, and he ended up being a pretty strong kid and, uh, you know, it's almost like he convinced himself. And once he built a little bit of momentum, I think the, the deadlift in particular is a challenging exercise. You know, I think being built, you know, being built for it obviously helps, you know, if you're a lifter that, that has a short torso, long arms and all that stuff, but I think enjoying it is definitely a big part of the process. So mm -hmm. if you're walking around every day with the mindset going, you know, Sometimes it frustrates me and I get it. Sometimes it's just to make people laugh, but you know, people talk about my poverty deadlift, my poverty bench. And I say, well, what if you changed your outlook on it? What if you actually thought you were good at it for a little while, what would happen? So that would be the first thing is, you know, changing a mental approach to where you actually enjoy going in. And then there's the technical side of it. But when you talk about like the ferocity going into a deadlift, that's one thing that I really enjoy about it is there's no other lift that just purely getting aggressive can cause an increase in performance like the deadlift, for me at least. Uh, for me to squat well, I kind of need to be calm. Mm. It, you know, like, like losing my mind doesn't, doesn't work when I'm squatting. But, uh, you know, I think taking that aggression into a pool certainly helps. From a training standpoint, uh, I think as you get stronger, you have to realize that reps become more expensive on recovery. So I'm actually doing considerably less work right now while simultaneously getting stronger than I was when I was younger. You know, I, I know you have a, you know, a past with the lead FTS. And I, I like to use this as an example because growing up in Ohio, you know, during geared powerlifting, there were only two places I went on the internet and that was, you know, Westside's website and Elite FTS as a, a young guy. And I used to look at the training logs of these people that were you know, incredibly strong. And I'd be like, they don't do anything. They just, they're not training that much. I'm doing 12 sets of this exercise and they're only doing two. Um, so I think as you get older and as you get more experienced and you get closer to your potential, you know, you do need to scale back on overall volume because reps are expensive. Now, I think as a younger person, I think once you're technically locked in, 
and you know how to lift well, you need to find how much total work you can recover from and kind of sit at that threshold for a, for a while. Because if you're trying to, you know, disrupt homeostasis and create some type of adaptation and you're only deadlifting 225, you know, three sets of five may not cut it. You know, you're going to have to put a good amount of work in. So with younger people, uh, we focus on a lot of volume and not necessarily a lot of singles or, or doubles or triples, but, you know, accumulating a lot of work over a, a long period of time and just simply getting good at the movement, pulling with intent, increasing volume and focus on putting muscle in the right areas of the body. And uh, so for a beginner, it's almost like a hybrid powerlifting bodybuilding approach has always mm. worked for building a pool with the young people. Absolutely. And, and it's great to see you developing the tools that help assist athletes and, and, you know, anybody looking to get stronger, no matter what part of the journey they're really in is because we can use, for example, like the PR platform, I've used reverse bands on it for younger lifters, get it, helping them get into position. I've been helping them, you know, just older lifters, you know, with a little bit of band tension, playing around with that. It just provides so much value to me as a coach, because it's, it's a tool that I can use for anybody at any level to give them what they need. Right. Because one of the biggest things with younger lifters is I would rather them pull from a higher position with really good form and work our way down as opposed to just slamming them into that lowest position possible and making them look like they're, you know, trying to shit a razor blade. So it's, it's one of those things that again, it's, it's, it's really cool to see the products that you put into the market have so much value to any level, right? The highest level or even just these beginners. And one of the products that I wanted to kind of spotlight is that foo bar of yours. That thing mm -hmm. is awesome. So where did that thought process come from for those who aren't really uh, familiar with it? Well, when I was young, I, I, I got strong as a young guy. You know, I, I would say that I have a fairly obsessive personality. And so uh, once I fell into strength training, that was pretty much the only thing that mattered to me. And so when I was a young kid, uh, it, it's actually kind of funny to say this out loud, but I went from deadlifting like 185 pounds to 704 while in high school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so I was a real big kid. I lost a bunch of weight. And then when I got into high school, I wanted to get bigger and stronger. And that became, you know, pretty much an obsession for me. And it was a, a lot of fun. But I always trained on this old, I don't even know, the bar was not a branded bar. It was just a bar. And it had a much larger diameter. And it was probably from the 80s or 90s. You know, it had 15 or 20 years of wear on it. And it was the only bar I had. I didn't know any better. And so when I was a young guy, I would go to these meets and I'd be like, why am I deadlifting 50 more pounds in meets than I am in the gym? And, uh, and it was because I was literally pulling on the bar from hell. Yes. No knurling big diameter, no bar whip. And I was too stupid to know why at the time. But as I got a little bit older in life, uh, I started saying to myself, okay, so when I was young, maybe I didn't know all that much as far as, you know, the correct ways to program it or not. But I, I did do some things correctly because I got stronger. And so I really, I sat down and I started thinking, what were some things that helped me? And that bar popped into my mind. And so, you know, I, I tried to duplicate it the best I possibly could, which is inch and a half diameter, uh, you know, so, and I, and I've noticed, and, and here's really one of the big takeaways, Sam, is when you pull on a two inch axle, the pull, unless you're just an absolute monster, the pull, how much you have on the bar is going to solely be dictated by your grip. You know, if you throw a pair of straps on, you're going to pull more on an axle, obviously. 
Okay. And, and so I would get up to the point where I was pulling like in the high 600s or low 700s on an axle, the weight would move easily. But if I put 20 more pounds on, I missed on grip. Uh, so by going down to an inch and a half, uh, it, it allowed me to hang on to a little bit more weight. So I was still training my back and, you know, my legs and, and, and everything and all the deadlift muscles really hard while simultaneously making that bar feel like it was stuck to the ground. It's a little bit more challenging on the grip, obviously, because it's a little bit bigger, but uh, with no whip, no knurling, no anything. I mean, it is a, it's a tough pull in the past. That is, it's trailed about a hundred pounds behind my deadlift of what I'm capable of pulling in a meet. Wow. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it, it is, it's, it's for anybody that hasn't used a, a thicker bar, even for something like a bench press, like it changes the game entirely. It changes the, the dynamics of the movement. It just changes how your body kind of supports that weight and stabilizes. And, and it's grip is such a tremendous uh, attribute that I think gets kind of misunderstood is like, you see people doing grip events and it's like, Oh, that's cute. Like whatever. But like grip can save your life, right? Like it, the stronger your grip is, the, the more capable you are later in life. Like that's one of the, the determining factors of longevity is like your grip and your ability to hold on to things and stabilize things. And you also have that, that it was like that I-beam attachment. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that has a cool story with it too. It's like doing pull-ups on those, you know, it, as a kid and, and, having that ability to continue to train your grip and, and to build that up. And again, it just shows that like your strength history is, is helping the next generation of strength athlete to have these experiences and be able to have this equipment that again, like you were like, you were like pulling, doing pull-ups on whatever you could, right? Like that finger strength yeah. is so, is so important. So that's uh, one of the coolest parts is, is to see those tools in action and to, to know where they came from. And, it is such an old school feel when you're using these things, when you're, when you're, you know, really incorporating these tools into your training, because like, I think nowadays, a lot of the, a lot of lifters don't have a real good understanding of real strength, right? Real day-to-day -day strength, just being like a, like a blue collar guy doing a job, just getting strong. And it's, it's like, you just need to continue putting that effort in, putting that work in and to just keep showing up. And I think a lot of the times they get caught up in the, the periphery, right? And I love seeing your posts, especially when you were really kind of locking in on your weight loss, locking in on just kind of changing the simple things in your life to get a better outcome. And man, like the results that you had from your efforts of weight loss were awesome to see. It was mm -hmm. like I blinked and you lost, what was it, like 30 pounds, 35 pounds? Like it was substantial yeah I, I started out uh i was consistently like in a 294 to 298 range yep. and uh i i was down to as low as 235 wow. but uh and it's actually funny i just put a post up on instagram kind of talking about that right before we we spoke but uh that that was a weight you know i kind of wanted to find the threshold of what i could hold sustainably with mm -hmm. with and, and like you even talk about the day-to-day -day, the work and whatnot you know, as I've gotten older, it's it's one of those things where uh, I want to feel good during my work day too. You know, it's like not everything is confined to just the hour and a half that I lift in the morning. So, you know, uh, I have a physical like you know, my day to day activity is very very high, and when I get to that weight around two thirty five, it's I spend most of the days where I'm a little bit foggy mentally, my legs feel like jello, I'm tired, I'm hungry, 
And so that's too light for me to perform well, you know, as far as the workday goes. But, uh, you know, kind of pushing to that point, let me know what I can go back up to and sustain and feel really good. So I guess all in all, it was probably about, you know, roughly 62 to 65 total pounds. But then I put some back on and, and have held between 240 and 250 where I feel my best for quite a while. But that was an eye-opening process. And I'll tell you what, anyone listening to this, if you undervalue nutrition right now, stop. Because uh, that if I can go back, and you can't go back, but if I can go back and start over again at 13 years old, knowing what I know now, I think the biggest thing I would have changed would have been nutrition. I would have taken it seriously all along. I don't think I ever would have just got into the mindset of just stuff 7,000 calories of whatever I could possibly find into my face every day. Because even in my late 20s, I was noticing, and, and I don't have any, this is anecdotal, I don't have any, you know, like exact blood work or anything like that to back this up. But, you know, in my late 20s, which is not old, you know, at 27, 28 years old, my elbows were inflamed, my knees were inflamed, my ankles hurt every day. I mean, you could ask like uh, some of these guys that I train with, there were days where it took like 455, 495 to break parallel on the squat because my hips just hurt and were tight all the time. Now, I think it was a compounding effect of being on my feet all day while weighing so much. But I also think just, you know, eating 50% good food and 50% garbage was not good for me. And it was not a good approach. I think there was a lot of inflammation. Uh, I don't think I was recovering that well. And, you know, and that led to a couple injuries that would hold me up. And it's hard to go to the gym when your knees hurt, your hips hurt, your back hurts, your ankles hurt, and your elbows hurt. No matter how much you love it, once you start, it's a frustrating experience. And I, I think one good thing right now about where we're at in training is, uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time that starting out when I did, especially gear was very prevalent at the time, you know, with, with, you know, multiply suits and all that, uh, the approach was always just get as big as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And so I, I fell into that, you know, because that's what I grew up with. That was all I ever heard. And then on the back end, as I've gotten a little bit older, you know, and, and you look around the world of strength right now, I mean, my goodness, there's guys ripping up 950 pound deadlifts with six packs, you know? And I think the, the world is opening their eyes to, I mean, of course, if you're a super heavyweight, you're going to be a super heavyweight. But if you're a 220, a 242, a 275, you know, you don't need to be a, a, a sloppy person that just eats anything. And to be quite honest with you, you know, I, I, hit, I hit squat PRs at 242 that I wasn't able to touch when I weighed 300 pounds. And that doesn't make sense, but it does make sense in the fact that while I was squatting at 242, I wasn't in constant pain. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's it's funny you mentioned that about the suits and whatnot because I I compete and multiply and I have a very different sort of sense of you know style of training than most. Like I'm focusing on nutrition, I'm focusing on my mobility, I'm focusing on being stable and, and healthy because I'm realizing it's like if I am not able to maintain the ability to just get into the suit and into position then it doesn't matter how strong I am because I won't be in the sport long enough to get the numbers that I want to hit. And it's, yeah. it's been really cool to be able to train with Dave and the guys at Elite because they're starting to shift that focus too. It's no longer just about, like you had said, just get bigger, fill out the suit, put more mass, just put 
10 pounds of shit into a five pound bag mm -hmm. and try to just compress it as much as possible. Now it's like, we're really working on getting strong out of the gear, getting stable out of the gear, getting healthy. Dave's been chirping on blood work. He's been chirping on like all of this stuff that has progressed so tremendously over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And you're starting to see the, the, the outcomes of that in the athletes that are around is like these athletes are now in better shape. They are hitting numbers that are just absolutely incredible and they're doing it for longer periods of time. And, and it's exciting. It's exciting to see where the sport is going in terms of powerlifting, strongman. Strongman is unbelievable. Some Absolutely. of the stuff they're doing now, it, like the 231 weight classes, hitting stuff, hitting numbers that the, the world's strongest man competitors weren't hitting just 10 years ago. And it's- It's, it's it, incredible. It's so amazing to see, but it's, it's because of the knowledge having being built brick by brick from years and years and years and people just using that information and using that knowledge. And again, every time I see a post by you and like you're putting your insight into training or putting your insight into anything, it, you provide a, a really good perspective because you break down these complicated things and make them into simple, tangible, actionable steps. Like for example, with your diet and your, your nutrition, it's, it's great to hear that like a lot of people will try to, you know, go on the internet and sound as complicated as possible. But like you showed everybody like, Hey, I was this heavy, this strong. Now I'm lost a bunch of weight, still strong. Now I look just chiseled and jacked, you know, compared to the old school multiply mm -hmm. powerlifter days. So what sort of were the big rocks for you in terms of nutrition that really provided you the most impact? Well, I'll tell you what, the, the, the first thing that if you want to make a change nutritionally and believe it or not, I spent most of my life not even knowing what my body needed every day from a caloric standpoint. I mean, the first time I figured out my daily calories, so I got real big. So this is, you know, uh, sometimes you have things in life that kind of make you think a little bit. Right. And so, uh, my wife, she started getting this little lump under her arm. And, you know, we didn't know what it was. It ended up, you know, ended up being just a, a benign tumor that was growing, but then the axillary nerve wrapped around it. We had to take her to a specialist. A couple specialists wouldn't even talk to her for this surgery. And, uh, and so she went in and obviously the, the, it was nothing that was spreading or anything like that. And we thank God for that. But, uh, going into a situation where you're, you're messing with nerves and you have these physicians saying, well, you know, if, if we make a mistake, she could possibly lose, you know, his loss of her deltoid and all this, you know, it's still a stressful experience. So, you know, I, I was sitting there waiting for her. And I said to myself, I said, man, like life is fragile. And here I am. I mean, I'll, in full transparency, I'll tell you what, when I was about 300 pounds, I was getting ready for the Arnold a couple of years ago. I was getting ready to tie my shoes in the morning and I bent over and got a nosebleed. Oh. And I said, I said, well, I said, that was like, a little bit alarming. And I said, well, maybe it was like dry air when I was sleeping or something like that. And then, you know, we went through that little speed bump with my wife where we were really concerned about her for a while. And I realized that life is pretty fragile and you're kind of on a, a thin line of, of going too far, you know, if, if you do push to the extremes. And so for me, that was a wake up call. So uh, I came home from that procedure. I decided I'm going to make a change in my life the day I brought her home from that. And so I said, okay, the first thing I need to do is I need to figure out how many calories a day I'm eating. 
So I just tracked my calories for three days and every day was between seven and 8,000. And it was a massive amount of food, but it was like, I would go to the gas station. I drive a lot, you know, I'm constantly picking things up, dropping things off. And it's like, every time I stopped at a gas station, I was picking up a couple protein bars and I was like, oh, they're protein bars. They're good for you. Right. And that just added up. So th the big thing is, is if you understand what your caloric requirements are for the day, okay, and you could actually track that, then you could start making the most basic changes you need, which is calories in, calories out, okay? Uh, for the average person, if you want to make major improvements with your body composition, once you know what baseline is for you, what calorie neutral is for you, it's truly as simple as, you know, finding an amount of protein that suits you well, which for most people is going to be somewhere in like a 0.8 to 1.2, you know, times body weight range. I like to be a little bit higher. I feel better on higher protein, but, uh, and then just take three to 500 calories out every day. If you're real big and you need to make a quick change, you know, maybe five or 600 a day, you'll start dropping weight pretty quickly, you know, pound, pound and a half a week. Uh, if you're already fairly lean, I mean, if you go into a 200 calorie a day deficit, you don't even notice it. I mean, you feel, you feel really good. And then just do that for six months. And at the end of six months, you'll feel really good the whole time. Your training will be really good the entire time. And, uh, and in six months, you'll like look in the mirror and go, man, I didn't even realize that was happening. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm big, you know, on, on, and it's actually funny because I just put this on the internet, but that first big wave of weight loss I had, I did it way too fast and I felt horrible, but honestly, at the time I didn't know any better. And so I just did what I had to do. But, uh, so that was the, the first big thing, but I'll tell you, the second big thing is we're all stuck, you know, in, in the paradigm that we've created in our heads. And for me, it was just getting really big, getting really strong. And that's just who I am as a person, but everyone's capable of changing. And when you start seeing the way that you eat differently and the way that you train differently, you're only like four to six weeks away from being a completely different person mentally. And I tell this to people all the time, when you start getting these little things in check, when you get your nutrition in check, when you get your sleep in check, and, and to me, it doesn't even feel like discipline because I enjoy it right now. You know, I enjoy the process of it. When you get those things in check, it makes everything else in your life better. If you're eating what you're supposed to eat, you're sleeping how you're supposed to sleep, you're training how you're supposed to train, I could promise you your performance at work is going to improve. If you're a student, your performance in the classroom is going to improve. It just, it's going to, because the fundamental things in your life that make you feel good and function as a human have improved. So uh, if you find your caloric needs, you know, that's step number one, uh, and, and then go from there. Obviously, the deeper you get into this, the more complicated things become. Uh, if you want to be a professional bodybuilder, you have to probably speak with someone that's been a professional bodybuilder and figure out what to do for them. But for for the day-to-day -day activities, uh, it's pretty, pretty simple. Mm. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of people <laughs> have a tendency of, of not realizing how much just being consistent with something over the course of time will provide that benefit. Right. Mm -hmm. I think everybody, as soon as you get on Instagram, it's always, you're flooded with this idea, that idea, that this, this, whatever, but you have to almost be able to shut that off and be like, stick to a plan, stick to a plan, see how it goes, gain that information, gain that insight. For example, that, that simple fact of you just taking the step to track what you were eating, 
it must have been mind-blowing to be like, I'm eating that much? Holy cow. Like, the, no wonder things weren't going the way they were supposed to or I'm feeling this way. And then you, then as you start to progress from that one little step to another little bit more of an in-depth step, you start to kind of refine things as you go. I think that is such a, a really good skill to have in, in the strength game and in, in the nutrition game, like is, is understanding that the first step you take is going to lead to bigger and better steps as you go, but you need to have the foundation, right? Yeah. And so honestly, this is how, like, I feel really good right now as far as my training and my work and everything. I mean, in day-to-day -day life, and I'm still very strict with my nutrition and it's really, I keep it this simple on off days from training. I eat about 320, 330 grams of protein on days that I train. I eat about 270 to 280 uh, allows me just get a little bit more carbs in around training time. So I have uh, protein sources that work well for me. They're usually lean meats. Uh, sometimes when I'm trying to get higher protein in, I will mix some egg whites in with my meat, you know, just because it's a, such low calorie protein source. But once I have that baseline of calories for the day, I try to get a green vegetable in with about three meals a day, somewhere around there. I will add some fruit in with breakfast every now and then, you know, a couple of days during the week. But once I hit my protein for the day, you know, depending on if it's a training day or an off day, I basically just fill in the balance evenly throughout the day with healthy carbohydrate sources. Mm. And I found for me, you know, I've tried the approach of, uh, you know, timing up, like getting more carbs in around training time and all that. But I'm on my feet from the time I wake up until the time I go to sleep every day. So, you know, by pretty much eating really well-balanced meals throughout the day, I feel good. And I've also noticed when I go really low on off days, I'm not recovered that well for the next training day. You know, the off day is just as important as the training day and the recovery process. So if, if, the, if the average person were to just know how many calories they needed, have a set protein requirement each day, pick, you know, pick 12 or 15 or maybe up to 20 foods that, that you're comfortable eating that are really good sources for you, uh, and then just fill in the gaps, hit your protein every day, hit your calories for the day, mix some fruits and vegetables in there, fill the balance up with carbs. I don't even count fat because I know the protein sources that I'm eating every day are going to lead me in a position where I'm eating about the amount of fat I need every day. Mm. And I keep, I, I don't like an app. I just keep a spreadsheet on my phone. And so I just, you know, I still weigh everything. Uh, and so just, I weigh the meal out. I type it in. It's pretty much even calories in every meal throughout the day. And then just get a balance at the end of the week, see what happened up and down. And then usually if there's a, a spike in weight for about three weeks, I'll pull some calories out. And if there's a drop in weight for about three weeks and I'll add them in. But I, I don't like to think short term because I mean, like even just retaining water. I mean, there's days that I've eaten low calories for a couple of days, but I wake up and I'm three or four pounds heavier. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just, I drank more the day before, you know, or didn't go to the bathroom immediately upon waking up, you know, and it's, right. I think a lot of times it's easy for people to, you know, they step on the scale and they're like, oh my God, you know, I'm six pounds heavier. Well, just give that two days. Mm -hmm. Don't make a drastic change. Just stay on track and stay on course and really think about this in terms of months and years, not days and weeks. Yeah. Now, you know, you had mentioned, uh, you know, off days, training days, what does your training look like right now? I mean, obviously okay. you, you were, you were going to be, uh, pulling at the Arnold, 
mm-hmm. but now what does your training look like in terms of that? Is deadlift your main focus? I would love to hear that kind of a breakdown. Yeah. So historically, I've always trained with a concurrent approach. Uh, it just has worked best for me. So I have spent probably at least the last eight years uh, where I do a 10-day rotation of training where so let's just talk about just the lower body. So say if I train the lower body on Wednesday and Sunday, I will do, uh, and this is just the basic of it, but uh, uh, I'll do a volume day on Wednesday, a dynamic day on Sunday, and then the next Wednesday, which would be the third session's an intensity day. And so if you put three of those 10-day waves together, you get one block. And so, you know, it's kind of has a block approach to it, but it's also a concurrent block. And each wave builds on the next. So generally volume is going to taper down over a 30 day period. Intensity is going to taper, you know, is going to creep up. Uh, so kind of when you get to that last wave, it's kind of a, a peak wave for you. You've removed some fatigue, but even in that rotation of those three days where you go volume, dynamic and intensity, one thing I really like about that is, is it, it, it really helps with recovery just from the flow of the day. So after a tough volume session, there's going to be some lingering fatigue. So I know with if I have a little bit of soreness in my back and my hamstrings, I'm a little bit beat up from saying doing box deadlifts on our PR platform or safety bar squats for sets of eight or 10, chances are I'm not going to hit a weight that's 95 to 100% and feel good about it. So, but if I switch to an, you know, a, a, a dynamic day, second in the rotation immediately after the volume day, I'm going to increase rate of force development, all that stuff. You know, I'm going to become more powerful, but if I'm handling weights that are in a 60 to 70% range, even with some fatigue, I'm still going to rip through those weights. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, you know, eight sets of two or eight sets of three at 60% with some band tension is a relatively easy workout. You know, I mean, if you're putting a lot of effort into it, you're going to feel like you did something, but you're not going to have as much fatigue as four sets of eight on a stiff leg deadlift. And so that serves as not only dynamic training, but also some, you know, basically active recovery Mm. during the week. So when I roll into the intensity session next, I feel really good and I'm ready to perform. So generally on that third intensity day, uh, you know, so I'll go three rotations through 30 days, three waves equals a block on the, the, the dynamic day immediately before the last intensity day, if I feel any lingering soreness or fatigue or anything, I just make it a demo day. I don't touch a barbell. I like to, that's an unplanned day. I really don't like to call it a demo day as much as I do a setup day because mm. I will do whatever is required to set up a big lift on the last day of that block. Uh, if I feel like I can get in and push hard, I do it. If I feel like I just get up that morning and need to do some mobility work and go for a walk. That's what I do. And, and I just play it by ear of what I think is going to help me achieve my best. So that would be one block. Now, if you think about it a little bit further, you know, you have to think about how are you going to stack these blocks up for long-term progress? So generally I like a three block approach for a training cycle. So let's talk about just the deadlift. So if you're weak off the floor on the deadlift, here's a really good setup. Okay. Uh, like, so say you do the foo bar, generally the further I am out from wanting to hit a one rep max on a, you know, a barbell lift, the more variation I put into the exercise to attack weaknesses. So if I'm one block out, I'm not going to be doing, you know, a foo bar from a deficit against bands when the next block rolls into a deadlift bar for a one rep max. So generally what I'm going to do is say block number one, 
will be a, a FUBAR deficit, but maybe against a reverse band. Now, a lot of people say it's kind of, you know, why would you do a reverse band from a deficit? Well, if I haven't been exposed to a four inch deficit for quite a while, then that's going to be a lot of stress in the bottom, like in a vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. And so honestly, just being there is going to get me stronger. So if I have a hundred pounds of, of, of band tension assisting me in the bottom, but I have 650 pounds on the bar, I'm still moving 550 through a range that I'm not used to. And that will carry over. So generally, so say a, a three, three block approach could be maybe your first intensity cycle, you're going to use a foobar with a reverse band from a four inch deficit. The second time through, maybe you're going to, you could keep the deficit, drop it down to two inches and lose the reverse band. So you're setting yourself up for a win. Okay. You're already, you're moving to a variation of the exercise where intensity is naturally going to creep up just based on exercise selection. It's not going to be where you want it to be at the end, but it's going to be getting there. And then that third block, well, now you could drop a deadlift bar on the ground. And of course, the intensity is going to go through the roof just because of the exercise selection. You've gone from, uh, you know, more challenging, moderately challenging to less challenging as far as the variation goes when you get back to the competitive lift. And so there has to be some forethought in, you know, not just doing things randomly, but I always say like you're stacking blocks. How is this block going to go on top of the next one and then on top of the next one and then on top of the next one for the most long-term success? And a lot of that comes down to just controlling volume and intensity and then controlling exercise selection. Absolutely. And it is, it's, it's really cool to see that because I just, I kind of wrote it down on paper and it makes sense. And, and it's the more conversations I have with really good coaches and really good athletes, the more I start to see a lot of these similarities of that variability. It's like being able to kind of dodge and weave when you need to is like that last dynamic day before the intensity day. You don't just have that written in stone. It's like whatever you think you need based on how you're feeling to set up for the end goal. I think a lot of people get lost in the day to day and they see the reps and sets on paper, and they think that that is gospel. Like you have to be able to do everything on the exact same day that you need to, regardless of how you feel. And that sort of auto-regulation that you work into it, obviously there are days where you just kind of feel sluggish and then you do the work and everything works out fine. But if your goal is to have that PR on a deadlift at the end of that third block, you need to be able to put yourself in a position to get there. You can't just be cutting yourself short you know, right at the knees, absolutely. right at the finish line, right before you test, right before you, you know, you go into that last block. So that is such a, a huge piece of information that I think if anybody's listening to this could really take home is have that end goal in mind, have an understanding and working back from there. And that's really programming one-on-one to kind of have a goal and work back. But again, I think a lot of the times is, is, people get into the rhythm of like, I need to do it this way because this is what the program says. But you probably have variability within every single one of those days. If something's feeling really good, if something's feeling really bad, you put yourself in the position based on your experience, your knowledge, and your, you know, your understanding of how your body responds to things to really get a lot out of those training sessions every single day. Right. Absolutely. And I think when you train and you, and you start gaining experience over a long time, uh, you know, I think you feel things that you may not be able to explain with words. 
So I, I understand when I've reached a fatigue level, say on an accessory exercise, if I was planning on doing four or five sets, you know, if I do three sets, I could kind of go, all right, well, that's about enough work because I know, I know how it feels to reach a fatigue level that's recoverable for my next session. And, and I just, I, and, and, you know, internally, I just know that like, if I get to the point where it's hard to bend over during a session because my low back is so pumped up, then 72 hours later, nothing good is going to happen. You know, so I try to push to that area where I'm starting to get there and then pull back, you know, but I think that's experience. And I'll tell you what, when it comes to training, I think understanding training is truly understanding that you have to be willing to adjust and you have to be willing to do things on the fly. You know, it's as I've, I focus, you know, my primary focus is strength, but I have enjoyed incorporating more hypertrophy work lately. And I take a lot of pleasure in subtle things that advanced people say that I think unless you have some experience, you wouldn't even know how how advanced their thought process is, you know. So like I was watching uh, a couple weeks ago, I was going through watching some old John Meadows videos. And mm-hmm. it's really a shame that he lost him so young. But uh just seems like a nice guy. I wish I really would have got to, to meet him. Just a good person, he seemed like. And so he's easy to watch, easy to relate to and listen to. Yep. But he, he was he was doing a, an arm workout. And uh, he was like, well, guys, you know, I was planning on doing a drop set here. But I think the weight's going to be too light. And uh, so I don't know. I, I think I'm just going to I think force reps feel right right now. Force reps feel right. And I was like, you know. Like, if you're just watching that, like, if I watched that video at 18, I wouldn't even have really caught on to the fact that, like, he he could feel what he needs right now, mm-hmm. you know, and that comes from 30 years of experience. And that's the big thing is, is I tell everybody, you know, the secret of this, and, and, and I've said this probably a hundred times, so bear with me, is, is start, try really hard, don't quit. You know, and and if you do those three things, you're going to end up getting really good results. But in the process of that, you know, over the course of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's going to take some time to understand this and to understand yourself. So those little subtle changes you could make aren't going to happen on year two. And and honestly, I think that's one of the biggest benefits of having a coach, especially if you're just getting started, is having somebody that does have that experience. And if you trust that person allow them to put the leash on and pull you back when they need to, or possibly even give you a kick in the butt when they, when they need to. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, Meadows because he came to mind with a lot of those different styles of intensification and modifications to the workouts. Cause I was lucky enough to not only see him in action, but to also train with him and, and actually get with him during a squat session. He was making a video for his YouTube channel. He was squatting and it was me and Dave and him and his crew and it was so cool to be a part of that because he was open to information from everybody. He didn't know me from a hole in the wall, right? He didn't know anything about me, but I was like, hey, John, just wanted to let you know that your feet are kind of wobbly on the squat. Like really, I mean, just if you were to stabilize those feet, you'd probably feel a little bit better. He was like, oh, good call, good call. Next set, he's like, how do my feet look? Like looking right at me, like asking me for my input. And it just, it just validated me as a person, but also it made me feel so welcome into the group. Like he, mm-hmm. was, he, was, he was taking information from everybody. He's like, did anybody get a good angle on that squat? How did that look? I want to know as much information as I can. It wasn't like, I'm John Meadows, 
and you're nobody. It was like, Hey, you're a training partner right now. How can we benefit each other? How can we help each other get better? And to oh. see that I was like, man, I was like, this is, this is the coolest thing in the world. And I was lucky enough to help like after he had passed, his son came in to do a video at elite and Dave had me teach him how to do a goblet squat. And I was like, I get to teach John Meadows' son how to yeah. how to do this. And I was like, this it like gives me goosebumps to even think about. It, yeah. it was one of the coolest moments of my life because it was like we got to experience John in his fullest when it comes to training. And it's like that intensity is there. But as soon as that set's done, nicest guy. Like he is so welcoming and warm. And it was just an amazing opportunity. And it's like being given that opportunity and seeing what a really good coach is, what a really good athlete is, what a really good person is. And it's like, that's what we need to shoot for. We need to shoot for being able to express information to people, but also be willing to take information in regardless of what level we're at, because good information is good information. And uh, yeah, it was phenomenal, man. It, it was wow. such a cool experience. And, and, and frankly, I think it's something that I wish, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to open a gym myself is because I want to give people the opportunity to experience training the way I was lucky enough to experience it, right? Over the mm -hmm. last 10, 12 years of my training life, I've, I've learned so much from people like John and, and Dave and Elite FTS and Westside. And even like the last five, six years, I've been watching what you've been doing. And every time you make a post, I always save it because I'm like, this is gold. Like this is how you express things is so beneficial to people in it. Thank you. And it really does an amazing, you do an amazing job of educating. And I think that yeah. education and sharing knowledge and sharing insight is so important. And that's why I, I try to surround myself and have conversations with people like you that are really, that just care about getting people stronger and really giving them solid information. So you do well, an amazing job you, of Sam that. I thank you for that. And, and, and I tell you, it's, I, I truly, you know, a couple things, but I think number one, if you talk to anybody that's really an expert in their field, you know, and I'm not saying myself, I'm saying just anyone in general, it doesn't matter what the field is, whether it's business, you know, whether it's training, most of them are open and accepting to all forms of criticism and all opinions. Now that doesn't mean that they're going to accept instantly what you say because they have a base of knowledge. I say always say it takes a certain amount of knowledge to sift through the bullshit. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's easy to fool somebody that doesn't know anything about a particular topic. But I find that you know it's almost as you get to higher levels of strength, you would think the people would become egomaniacs. But I found that honestly, in my at least in my personal experience, most of the people that are the strongest are the most open. And I think everybody should sit back there and, and maybe take a lesson that they're taking advice from anybody, not saying they're implementing all of it, but they're at least taking into consideration. And, you know, I was fortunate when I was young uh, that, uh, you know, being in Ohio, I would go down to meets every year in, in Columbus area and uh, getting to bump into Louis Simmons as a young guy. And, you know, I was only at Westside maybe, you know, six to eight times or so as a young person, but had the opportunity to go there and, so Louis saw me pull a 700 pound deadlift at 17. And so he invited me down and he did ask me at that meet, why does your bench suck? And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, I benched, I benched 360, you know what I mean? It wasn't like too horrible, but it wasn't anywhere close to the squat and deadlift. And so, uh, you know, I went down there and I always say, I didn't learn this lesson until about, you know, 10 or 15 years after I had it, but 
he started asking me about what I do to train my deadlift. Well, first, when I walked in, he started telling the guys down there that this kid pulls more than you, this kid pulls more than you, this kid pulls more than you. And I'm like, naturally, I kind of like to just be quiet and in the background. And so that was like, I'm looking at these grown men that could tear me to pieces. And, you know, he's talking <laughs> shit for me. But, uh, but you know, I think uh, he, he was asking me about what I do to train. And I was basically following 90, 98% of what he said, mm -hmm. you know, but even at that time, I, I found that if I pulled speed pulls for three weeks and I wanted to test my deadlift every four weeks, then the fourth week I didn't do speed pulls because it would allow me to be a little bit more fresh. So there was already some regulation. So I was, I was telling him just basically how I set things up and stuff. And he was much older than me. He was, you know, very experienced, very knowledgeable, has the most well-known gym in the world at the time. And I'll never forget being a 17 year old kid. Like he gave me the floor for like 10 or 15 minutes. And he actually listened to what I was saying. And at the time I thought I was just having a conversation with a guy about lifting. And then about 10 or 15 years later, I thought to myself, well, that guy gave a child the opportunity to tell him something. And I don't know if he learned anything. Cause I was basically just doing what he said to do in the magazines. But, uh, but at the same time, he was open to do that. And while I think a lot of people, they see Louie on videos as kind of being brash and, you know, and very opinionated and all that. I was lucky to see that as a young kid, that he had that side to him, where when you spoke to him, he was going to try and pull some kind of gem out of it that was going to help his lifters. Yeah, it's that level of experience that it's it's really hard to kind of compare it to anything else is I never got a chance to meet Louie in person, unfortunately, but I got to meet a lot of really great people that trained with him and, and at Westside. And it, it's, you're never done learning ever. Like you're, you're no. always in a position to gain more insight, more knowledge and more experience. And, and those are the people that I want to be around. And I think surrounding yourself with people that are not only like-minded, but are open to learning more, open to trying new things. And, and developing, you know, even a training crew that pushes you, but also you're having conversations between sets that, you know, you're trying to make everybody else better. They're trying to make you better. You're pushing each other. That competition is there. I think that's a lost art a lot of the time in training that having those people around you to, to obviously push you, but also to be like, hey, try this, look at this, you know, that you trust and you develop that trust. Now, do you, you train with a training crew now? Well, we, we've had, you know, I actually, we, we had a gym for years. I was a gym owner for 10 years. So we sold the gym. I'm actually in my basement gym right now, but we're set up at the house. I've, I've been training with the same guy for, uh, you know, almost eight, about eight or nine years now. And so we built a, a, a pretty good relationship, you know, seeing mm -hmm. each other four or five days a week to train. And then we've had a lot of other guys that have sifted in and out during the summertime. A lot of my college kids come home, sure. you know, during the holidays and whatnot, and they train with us the, the challenging thing for that is, is we train really early in the morning. So, uh, you know, we're usually started by 5 a.m. And so it kind of wipes out. I mean, even people that have a job that starts at 7 a.m., you know, luckily I work in sweatpants and a T-shirt all day. So I could just get done training, eat real quick, change and get to work on time. But, uh, you know, for somebody that, say, has an office job or something or, or if they're working 30 minutes away, it's really a challenge to train at 5 get done at 635 and then obviously not be late for work. So uh, I've had the one guy trainment. Now Zach was very, very gifted. He squatted 843 weighing 227 raw when he was only 22 years old. Wow. Uh, 
super gifted kid. Uh, he's, he's right now uh, doing great for himself in life, married and, and has a, has a successful career. So he's kind of at the stage where I was in my, my mid to late twenties of, you know, trying to set his life up to be successful. But every now and then he looks at me and says, don't worry, I'm going to be really strong one day again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, but you have to take into consideration that, you know, uh, I think he didn't squat anything heavier over 500 pounds for probably two years, you know, just doing like reps on things. And then, uh, we put a bar on his back and he squatted heavy for a little while. And I believe it was 685 for five after like four to six weeks of pushing it again. So he's, he's gifted enough that he could do some damage if he wants to. And, uh, but it's been great, but I'll tell you, you even talk about training partners. You know, I think, you talk about the lost art of that, you know, it is when I train with guys, I want to see them do well in the gym. I want to see them be successful here, but I also want to see them be successful at other things in their life. And, you know, and, and it's funny, the, the people that I've trained with over the years, you know, somebody moves into a new house, we're helping each other. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, somebody gets a new job, we're happy for them, you know? I, and I tell you what, there's been plenty of times where I've had training partners that were trying to you know, advance their life, whether it was their career or anything. And I've told them like, listen, if I don't see you for a few months, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like go, go do what you got to do. Like the barbell is going to be here. I promise you that, you know, but this opportunity to get a, a promotion at work, that's going to come and that's going to go. And so, you know, as a training partner, I see somebody that you have to push in the gym and work really hard with and do all those things. But I think the relationship should also be deeper than that. But I also think that when you have that relationship with the training partner, you also have to be able to look too and say, okay, are they just making excuses now, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and be rough on them when you have to, and not always just say what's convenient at the time. But then also if somebody's struggling a little bit, you know, help them find what the issue is for them. You know, there should be that like prodding and pulling and trying to figure out if you haven't made progress in five or six months, is there something going on outside of the gym? You know, is there some extrinsic factor and, and helping them all around just in, because if your life, if your personal life is going better, your training is going to be better. I could promise you that. And coming from a lifelong meathead, I will tell you when my training's better, my personal life is better. So they feed each other. And uh, so making sure that both of those are in check for myself, but also for the people that I train with is, is, is important for me. Yeah, I agree. It, it's funny you mentioned that I was on the phone with two of my training partners yesterday talking about nothing about training. It was all about their next steps, the, the jobs they're interviewing for, the things they got going on. Uh, my training partner, Adam, uh, actually trained with Doug Heath for years and years. And okay. Doug, would, Doug would always say, like, I don't care how strong you are in the gym if you're not setting yourself up for success in life. Like, you need a good job. Like, you, you have to be successful in what you do. You have to support yourself, your family, the people around you. You, you can't just be a one-trick pony and be your best at, at, in the gym. Like, and it's a lot of what you're saying is similar is, is the better your training is, the better your life is, the better your life is, the better your training is. And you can't just sacrifice one thing for the other all the time. There are these phases, there's waves, right? You, you can kind of push something off to the side for a little bit, but it's so funny you mentioned that because I was just talking to my training partner about that. And uh, Doug Heath, obviously world record holder and when he was mm-hmm. lifting, like just one of the strongest 165er, he was in multiple weight classes and he was just a stud. And it's, 
it's amazing because he was like, yeah, was a lifelong firefighter, great with money, saved up a bunch of money, built a, built a life for himself where he could be comfortable. And, and like, you don't hear that a lot with, you know, some of the other lifters in that era. It was always like, oh, they were really strong, but like they were, you know, just struggling with the financial side of things or like life outside was bad or, you know what I mean? So to be that well-rounded uh complete self I think is so beneficial. And again, it's, it's funny that, that you said that and like Dougie was saying that and like, it's, it's great to make those connections between the people that are doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I tell you, after being around this, you know, 20, be what 20, almost 20, 22 or 23 years of training and, you know, first meet at 15, I just turned 35. So, you know, 20 plus years of, of, of competing. Uh, I will say this, in the world of strength right now, it is absolutely incredible. I mean, people are doing things that I never thought I would ever see in my entire life. I used to look up on uh, on the internet the the 900 pound deadlift Hall of Fame. There were like six guys in it, you know, and and not anymore. You know, that's that's changed obviously. Yeah, and uh, but I will say, 20 years ago, the personalities that were gravitated towards powerlifting were far more extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think I know why. And it's actually funny because when, when I went down, you know, elite, we had some of our products on elite FTS for a little while and then steel market went crazy and we just don't have the margins to, to, to have that set up anymore. But, uh, you know, I, when I talked to Dave down there, he and I had this conversation and I think he agreed with me was, you know, during that era, you have to think about this. Okay. Just strictly back to powerlifting. If you're going to squat, it's going to take four hours on a Saturday or Sunday. So number one, you have to be in the mindset, you know, in the mental state that you're going to give up 30 minutes to get somewhere, four hours to squat, and then 30 minutes afterwards. Okay. Cause it just takes a long time in gear. Uh, so I think that weeded a lot of people out. you got some really extreme guys just because of that. And then I also think with no social media at the time, and I think this may be the biggest factor. If you competed two or three times a year, you only had two or three opportunities to show everybody how strong you got. Mm-hmm. So, you know, generally, you know, not being a world record holder or anything like that, you know, you're going to be going to local and regional level meets. Maybe if you're lucky, you're a guy that makes it to nationals or something like that, you know, if you put your time in. But generally, the bulk of your meets are going to happen, you know, probably within 60 to 80 miles of your hometown, and you're going to see the same guys all the time. And so I think when you go out there, you only had one opportunity to show what you've worked for. And so I think people went crazy because they felt like this was it. This was the one chance, you know, nobody cares what you squatted in the gym on Instagram because nobody saw it because there was no camera in the gym. There was no Instagram to post it on. And, and that was it. So I think the personalities were people that, you know, they liked the extreme nature of, of powerlifting at the time. And then when you couple that with you only get a couple shots a year to really let everyone see what you did, the personalities were pretty wild. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, there was a lot of intensity. I mean, I, I, I will love lifting till the day I die, but I will say I've been to some meets where it's very calm and, uh, you know, and I've even seen, you know, guys go out and it's a PR temp. And I'll tell you this, Sam, if you're, if you're a grown man, you're working, you got a family, you do all this. And guess what? You're going after your 440 pound squat PR, 200 kilos, right? And you get fired up and you're ferocious and you get under the bar 
you know, again, squat the fucking weight and get it done. I'm going to be happy for you. You hit a PR. That's great. People go, oh, it's only 440 and like kind of giggle and everything like that. It's the best that guy got in him right now. Yeah. Go out there and get, get after it, you know? And, and that actually gets me fired up because I'm like, you know, unless you're a world record holder, there's always someone stronger than you. Always. So unless you're number one in the world, we're all playing the same game. Okay. And so uh, I think going to some of these meets where it's a little bit more laid back, a little bit more calm, you know, I think, and that's fine if that's what you want to do. But I see people that I think they almost feel like they don't have the right to like get into it or something because they haven't hit a certain level of strength yet. But here's the real takeaway from this. If you don't take 440 seriously, you're never going to give yourself the opportunity to take 740 seriously. And if you don't take 740 seriously, you're never going to give yourself the opportunity to make 850 seriously. Mm-hmm. And, y- you know, and so I-, I watched a video a couple years ago of uh, Hafthor Bjornsson deadlifting. It was 661. And, uh, and it was very hard. It was in the beginning of his, his lifting career. And, you know, he's this monstrous guy, even at the very beginning stages of things. But if you would have looked at his face and looked at his aggression and looked at all that, at 661 and 1104 or 1107 or whatever it was he ended up at, you know, uh, it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. It was a hungry guy that wanted to lift that weight off the ground, you know, and it's uh, and, and so it does. I don't care where you are right now. If you want to get stronger, you got to bring a little fire into this. You got to bring a little intensity into this. And, and I tell you, and don't get ahead of yourself. If Be happy with where you are now and then work to change it. Because if you're constantly putting yourself down or you feel like, you know, because you're not that strong yet, you can't be a certain way, it's never going to happen for you. And I think everyone is capable of being significantly stronger than they think they can. I, I, truly, I truly believe that. I think yeah. a lot of people cut themselves short. Mike, I can't say that that was the, probably the best way to wrap this episode up. That was mm-hmm. awesome. Huge, man. I, 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 your insight is amazing. And I think... It, there needs to be more people like you in the industry that can really help, you know, the next generation of lifters and athletes and coaches, because again, your perspective is so insightful in how you, you know, want people to get better. You want people to grow. You want people to appreciate the work that they've done, but still have that little chip on their shoulder to want to get better. And, and that's just being able to, you know, express that is, is really, really cool to say. So I appreciate that tremendously. I think what we're going to do is we're going to wrap this up. Any last words, anything you're working on that you want to pimp out? I know I'm going to be pimping out your stuff because I'm going to be using mm-hmm. it all the time, but I didn't know if you had any new projects that you're underway or anything that you kind of want to share with everybody. Yeah. So, I mean, right now we're, we are at a phase where we're planning on getting some new products out here uh, throughout the rest of the year. And I really don't like to talk about them too much until they're done because, you know, if you have four or five ideas, Sometimes two of those ideas take a couple years and sometimes they happen a little bit faster. But, you know, the, the process of me making new products always begins with what do I want for myself and the people that are around me? And uh, I've never once sat down and said to myself, like, let's come up with something. You know, it's always been like, well, I would like to be able to do this. So I have a few of those things right now that we've been using that I've really enjoyed. Uh, and so we're going to keep doing that and, uh, and hopefully get maybe three to five additional products out this year. You know, all of our existing products are on the website, mbpowercenter.com. And uh, I love talking with customers. If, if you have questions, 
you know, as far as uh, actually using our products, the correct way to use them, uh, or just product questions themselves, you know, everyone's always welcome to give me a call or an email. But uh, yeah, so I think moving forward, we will have new things out this year. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when that timeline is going to be, but I appreciate you having me on today. And I tell you, and I'm thankful for, uh, you know, in the short period of time here over about seven years, we've been, we've been able to gain some traction. And uh, I, I tell you, it was not an easy start. It never is. Uh, definitely some scary times and all that. So I'm, I'm certainly grateful for, for everyone that supported us along the way. Fantastic. And guys, thank you very much for checking this episode out. We're going to cut the recording now, but if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please shoot them into me uh, and I'll put all of Mike's contact information down below here. And uh, yeah, man, like I said, I truly appreciate your time. Truly appreciate your insight. You're an absolute gem of a human. And I love that. So you will be on again. Don't you worry about that, especially when you got some new stuff coming out. I'd love to get the insight on what you got going on when, when that comes out. Are you going to be back in Ohio anytime soon? Absolutely. I uh, should yeah. be back in a couple weeks. Uh, I'll, I'll be reaching out to you when I, when I head out there. I mean, it's yeah, funny. You're always now, welcome the, to stop by. The, uh, we got some new direct flights from Providence right to Columbus. So it's like, okay, great. Super cheap flights pop right out there. I'll probably be out there more than, <laughs> more than I was when I was living there. So I'll, I'll be in the, I'll reach out for you when, uh, when I do that. But like I said, guys, I appreciate you guys listening. Appreciate you checking it out and we will see you in the next one. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.